Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federalist Society's virtual event. This afternoon, April 13th, 2022, we discuss issue update, Woke Capital. My name is Ryan Lacey, and I'm an assistant director of practice groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of our expert on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have an excellent speaker in Dan Morinoff, who I'll introduce briefly. Dan is the executive director of the American Civil Rights Project, and he founded the ACR Project's predecessor. Dan has practiced law at a number of prestigious firms and previously served on the legislative staff for Senator Phil Graham. Dan holds a BA from Columbia University and a JD from the University of Chicago Law School. He also served as an officer or director of a number of community organizations in Dallas, Texas. After our speaker gives his opening remarks, we'll turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we'll handle questions as we can towards the end of today's program. With that, thank you for being with us today. Dan, the floor is yours. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I've been a Federalist for a long time, I guess a long time listener, uh, but this is the first time that I've actually been allowed to be the main speaker rather than just a moderator at one of these. And it's, it's certainly an honor to, to have the chance to take the floor for this forum. So, uh, right. We are talking about woke capital and specifically as an issue update, some of what's being done to combat it. I say an issue update because most of the things I'm talking about are not yet in litigation, uh, though I think we can expect and we'll discuss a little bit further on when we can expect some of them to, in fact, get there. Um, Look, we are two years into the racial reckoning, as it's sometimes called, that followed the killing of George Floyd over that time period. Uh, we've, we've seen how this has played out. We've seen that there are countless policy changes that have been made as part of that reckoning. Undoubtedly, a bunch of them were made by governments. We're not talking about those. Um, we're talking about the policy changes made by corporations, by private actors uh, in this space. And fortunately, there's still an awful lot of those, really any number. And we're actually going to have the chance just to talk about the policy changes made by very large companies uh, who are iconically American. Um, companies like Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Starbucks, Disney, uh, Lowe's, the hardware place. Um, these companies and others like them have made lots of policy changes, almost invariably rolled out under the shared banner of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, the policies have almost invariably been advanced nominally to support social interests, social justice, uh, social betterment in the terminology of ESG. Um, the policies that we're talking about seek to serve that end specifically through adopting the differential treatment of people based on identitarian characteristics, their race, their ethnicity, their sex, their gender, sometimes their disability status that does get included, though not always. 
we should pause for just a moment to talk about what laws those policies therefore implicate, uh, since there are a lot of laws at both federal and the state level that address when and how private actors can consider those factors in making decisions. Um, probably the most famous of those would be the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It did a lot of things. It has a number of titles. <laughs> the title that we're most concerned with for these purposes is going to be Title Seven. Title Seven governs employment law, hiring, firing, promotions, compensation, terms of employment, which has been interpreted to include uh, staffing decisions, all of that. And what does Title Seven say about them? What Title Seven tells us is that employers are barred from from making those decisions based on race, color, religion, sex, national origin. I said it that that governs employment decisions. It's worth honing in on how broad is that? Like that, that definitely includes, you know, your, your line employees working wherever, you know, in the terminology, as an example, if we're talking about Starbucks, it includes everybody in one of the company owned stores, it includes anyone in the corporate hierarchy, it includes officers. It's worth noting that it, it, it can also include the directors on a corporate board. Now, that's not always the case. Uh, the leading case here is actually from the Second Circuit Court of Appeals from 2014. It's Frederick versus UBCA Local 926. Uh, there's a balancing test as to whether or not the election of a director constitutes employment for these purposes. For right now, it's sufficient to say, yes, yes, it can. So um, bearing that in mind, Title VII says you can't make these decisions on the basis of race. Of course, the case law has carved out some fairly large butts over the years. Um, exceptions to that general rule. Um, a marker, uh, the Weber case from <laughs> the Weber case written by Justice Brennan decades ago, it, it did. It made an exception. It said, well, a voluntary program by a private employer can, in fact, make promotional decisions on the basis of race if you fall into the, the this these certain narrow categories. What are those? Well, you have to be talking about a traditionally segregated field. You have to be talking about an employer that has a racial imbalance in the relevant population. Uh, a racial imbalance in the relevant population that arose from prior discrimination by the employer uh, and the race conscious intervention has to be temporary, undertaken only to fix the existing imbalance in this traditionally segregated field resulting from past discrimination by the employer. If that's true, and it's temporary, and once the imbalance is corrected, the intervention will cease rather than continuing uh, to maintain racial balance, then yeah, they're allowed to do it, okay? Um, there is this exception. If the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is certainly the best known federal legislation that touches on these subjects, it is not the only federal law that touches on these subjects, uh, and it wasn't the first. That would 
that would have been the Civil Rights Act of 1866, passed early in Reconstruction. Uh, it's actually the statute, the 14th Amendment, was subsequently written and ratified to constitutionalize, to make sure that what Congress had done was actually within its powers. Uh, the most important part of the Civil Rights Act of 1866 for our purposes, as amended, is now codified at 42 U.S.C. 1981. 1981 covers not just employment contracts. It covers all contracts. Uh, and unlike Title VII, it only bars discrimination on the basis of race. So religious discrimination, sex discrimination, 1981 doesn't cover those. On the other hand, race as used in 1981 is interpreted more broadly. Uh, it doesn't mean whatever the current definition of race advanced by the Census Bureau might be. Uh, so instead, in this older understanding of race, distinctions of national origin, nationality, ethnicity, all of those, in fact, are covered. There are also state laws that are going to be material here. And not all states have them, but there are states that have enacted their own statutes paralleling 1981. Definitionally, all of those statutes are broader than 1981. If they were less broad than 1981, the Supremacy Clause would have rendered them invalid anyway. But for decades, it's been clear that states have the power to offer greater protections of equality in front before the law than the federal government has. And a number of states have those statutes barring kinds of discrimination in contracting. Um, we could take one set of them, all of which fall kind of are kind of similar in how they handle this. Um, the UNRWA Civil Rights Act of California, the New York Human Rights Law, the New Jersey Law Against Discrimination, all of these uh, ban discrimination in contracting on a set of factors that's much broader than 1981. It isn't just race. Uh, it's race or ethnicity, sex, gender identity, gender expression, they also include marital status. They, it's a long list. All, of, all three of those have fairly similar long lists. There are other states that also have statutes that are relevant here that to the eyes of someone familiar with 1981 read a little strangely. Like uh, there are at least two states, I think there are more, uh, that have bills that don't per se say you as a private actor cannot discriminate on the basis of race or other factors in contracting. No, no. Instead, these statutes say you as a private actor cannot discriminate on the basis of these identitarian characteristics in contracting as a result of an agreement with a foreign government entity or person. There's an interesting story behind how we got there, but I don't think it's terribly relevant to what we're talking about right now. So I'm just going to skip right over that. Those statutes are also there, though, and they're material and they do at times have something to say about the policies we're talking about. Okay, with that in mind, uh, we should talk about some of the specific policies that corporations rolled out that have been attacked and how they've been attacked. Um, I'm going to start with Coca-Cola. Um, as we make this leap over to talking about specific policies, please bear in mind that in the biggest picture sense, there are two different ways that attacks 
can be lodged against these corporate policies. They can be attacked on what I'm going to call the retail level by a specific person who's been discriminated against under one of these policies complaining about it. Or they can be attacked at the wholesale level, which I think you'll understand what I mean better as I explain how these attacks have unfolded. I'm going to start with Coke for a few reasons. One, because it made its announcement of policy in early 2021. So it was one of the first to get much scrutiny. Also, because of the iconographic value of Coca-Cola, it's certainly arguable that no corporation anywhere has ever been as associated with a particular company as Coca-Cola is with the United States of America. And I say that I probably shouldn't. I'm sure that the British East India Company was equally in its day viewed as an extension of the United Kingdom. But there's actually a whole book that I'll put a quick plug out for, um, The History of the World in Six Glasses, which it's a meta history. It is the history of all of human civilization told through the history of six different beverages. Those beverages are beer, wine, distilled spirits, coffee, tea, and Coca-Cola. And why Coca-Cola? Look, I'm trying to sum up a whole book in a couple sentences, but basically the argument is that everywhere the United States military went in World War II and thereafter, it brought with it Coca-Cola. And that since America, unlike other great powers, it didn't annex the places that it conquered or freed, depending on how you want to style that, into an empire. The far better label of the extent of Pax Americana was the presence, not of American flags, but of Coke machines. That if Coke was there, you were in the, the global world order of the West constituted by the United States. And if Coke wasn't there, you weren't. So that like throughout the Cold War, Coca-Cola was not sold in the Soviet Union. Pepsi was, Coke was not. That's probably enough or more than enough for these purposes. With that said, it means more when Coke adopts a policy violative of federal law than when almost anyone else could just because of what it seems to mean as a result of it being Coca-Cola, such an important entity to the conception of what America is. So what was the policy that they announced? And by the way, this, again, it happened in early 2021. Coke had just brought in a new general counsel and a published open letter to all of his outside firms. Uh, that general counsel announced the following. And it was like a seven page long document. I am not going to cover all the things that were in it that are objectionable, just kind of the high level summary of what this did. One, it required quarterly every law firm employed by Coke to report to Coke the race, ethnicity, sex, gender, and disability status of everyone who had appeared on any of their bills. As an aside that we'll come back to only very briefly, um, there is an Americans with Disabilities Act problem in the idea that people's health status was being disclosed with particularity by their employer. But you know, for our purposes, that's largely beside the point. Quarterly, these reports would have to be made. Quarterly, the law firms themselves would have to have arranged their affairs 
so as to produce statistics showing that at least initially 30% of all associate time billed to Coke and 30% of all partner time billed to Coke were billed by diverse attorneys. Half of those totals were required to be billed specifically by black attorneys. The announced policy said that these were pegged to census data, if not very accurately, and that these totals would be ratcheted up over time to at least 50%, still requiring half of such to be billed specifically by black attorneys. If any law firm failed to meet these goals in any quarter, the published policy said that that was fine once. They would be given a chance to explain how they were going to fix it. But if they missed in any two consecutive quarters, Coke would unilaterally reduce what it paid for legal services under existing engagement letters by 30% until a future quarter remedied that failing. The policy also stated it also made requirements as to whom the responsible partner for the Coke relationship must be and who would be on deck for that relationship status going forward, uh, for there to be disclosures of the compensation considerations for attorneys at the partner level, how they were, whether that status played a role, things like this. Uh, it also conditioned both the granting of any new work and the inclusion on Coke's then being prepared list of preferred legal vendors on compliance with these policies. Look, at the retail level, there are a number of people who could have complained about this, right? Like any law firm whose statistics were to be included could certainly complain that it was being subjected to a policy that threatened to reduce its, reduce its compensation by 30% unless it violated Title VII. Um, such a complaining entity, it wouldn't be bringing a Title VII claim. It would be bringing a claim under 1981, saying that it was being discriminated against on the basis of the race of its workforce. Such a law firm could bring this. Uh, alternately, potentially a law firm that was not engaged by Coke could bring a suit claiming that it was denied the chance to, to fairly compete for Coke's work based on race. Um, alternately, an employee could certainly have brought, an employee of one of those law firms could certainly have brought a suit against its employer under Title VII. It couldn't have argued under Title VII that it also had a claim against Coke. There is a Supreme Court case from 1979 that said you can't make an end run around the terms of Title VII by using Section 1985, a different section of the Civil Rights Act of 1866, to create additional liable parties through a conspiracy. Um, but they might have been able to make an ADA claim if they were discriminated against on the basis of that, of their lack of uh, disabled status. They might, it might have been available for them to argue that there was a conspiracy claim there if it probably wouldn't have worked. Uh, regardless, look, the, the threat that there would be such a suit was in fact advanced. Um, Boyden Gray uh, made that threat, pointed out, this is violating 1981, you should expect a lawsuit. Um, to my knowledge, 
I don't believe any law firms, he was going to be doing so on behalf of another law firm, as I understand it. Uh, to my knowledge, no law firm ever actually agreed to sign up to bring that litigation. I don't know why law firms were uninterested in doing so, but I, I think I can make some pretty good guesses. I think that it's very likely that the kinds of law firms that uh, could credibly say that they would be engaged by Coke, but for this discriminatory policy, almost all either have Coke as their largest client, or if they were engaged, would have Coke as their largest client. And they presumably feared retaliation, which yes, is illegal, but that doesn't mean it wouldn't happen. So presumably they would fear retaliation by Coke or by other large companies that might take badly to a, a law firm working for them, <laughs> taking issue with this policy. Uh, if that's at the, the retail level, and there's an alternative, which is an attack at the wholesale level. And my shop, the American Civil Rights Project, did pursue that on behalf of, uh, of shareholders. We sent the officers and directors of Coke a letter um, highlighting the applicability of 1981, as well as some pretty well-established corporate law. Coca-Cola is a Delaware corporation. This is specifically Delaware law, though all the other states that I'm aware of have similar provisions in their own corporate law. Uh, in the terminology of the Delaware courts, the state does not charter lawbreakers. Since it doesn't charter lawbreakers, um, officers and directors who establish a policy of violating law, that is all but per se a breach of their fiduciary obligations to their investors. Incidentally, the business judgment rule does not apply here because the choice to violate the law as violative of public policy is not a legitimate one. So people don't get to shield behind the business judgment rule in arguing why they picked to pursue an illegal policy. It's also worth noting here that this line of reasoning provides at least two avenues of attack. You could either argue on behalf of shareholders that there's a breach of a fiduciary duty to them by the officers and directors who are endangering the company and the value of its stock by adopting illegal policies, or alternatively, you could actually bring an ultra buries suit. And that's one from, you know, the, the depths of history back in your corporate law class. Um, ultra buries was the doctrine which said that if a corporation's officers and directors pursue something outside of the language of their charter, that they're not allowed to do that. So, you know, if your charter says that you're a bookstore and you start doing something else like selling records, then, oh, you violated it. It's an ultra various action. We can sue you about that. And for, for generations, that's basically been a dead letter because corporations changed their charters to pretty invariably say something to the effect of, um, this entity exists to pursue any lawful course of business. But of course, this flags that there's still an exception which falls into that ultra viris concept, right? Like if you actually have a policy that isn't a lawful course of business, if your policy is to violate a law in your business, that actually would be an ultra viris action, or at least arguably would be. So that would be an alternative route one could go as well. Uh, jumping back to Coke, we flagged all of this law, the state and federal laws that make racial contracting illegal, and highlighted that the officers and directors, should they retain this policy, would be 
breaching their obligations uh, and would personally owe any damages that accrue back to the company. There are two details I should mention about that. One, one is that Section 1981, uh, in the presence of an intentional violation of a civil right, makes available uncapped punitive damages. Um, the other would be that since we're talking about an intention violation of law, this isn't even something that's insurable. So when I say that this would come out of the pockets of the officers and directors, I do mean out of their pockets. They couldn't be reimbursed by their insurers for the damages that eventually accrued. If this was litigated, those losses would, would in fact be the personal problem of the officers and directors responsible. Okay, we're gonna jump ahead uh, to the end of this story, which is that at the end of February, the new general counsel who replaced the general counsel who announced this policy so publicly uh, did put in writing and announce that these policies are not and never were the policy of Coca-Cola. It is worth noting how total retreat this is. The position was not that the company had reconsidered and reversed. It wasn't that the company had reconsidered and reversed without ever implementing the policy it established. It was that it had never been corporate policy. Regardless of how credible a position that is, it's worth noting how fully it commits to disowning this as ever having been the policy of the company. It's also worth mentioning at this point that we have now taken a parallel approach to several other entities, uh, advancing demands on Starbucks and McDonald's. I'm gonna spend more time talking about just those two. Um, those demands are outstanding now. They are currently on the clock. We will see how they respond. Um, both change their policies in ways that are largely parallel. They are, they're different changes than the policy advanced by Coke. They, this doesn't involve outside counsel. Instead, here we have policies on hiring and promotions uh, at all levels, on shifting corporate supply contracts, on shifting corporate media contracts and buys, and on uh, altering the racial composition of the corporate board of directors. All of these policies discriminated in one case on the basis of race, in the other on the basis of race and sex. You, you can run back through the laws we were just talking about, right? Like they all, in fact, discriminate on the basis of race uh, for the suppliers and media companies. We're talking about the race of the ownership of the companies, okay? Do all of those violate 1981? Yes. Do all of those violate Title VII? Well, no, no, they don't. The, the media companies and the suppliers are not employees. They're not. But um, the hiring and promotional decisions at all levels, that, that's covered by Title VII. So is the arguably the altering of the racial composition of the board of directors. So is Title VII implicated? Yes. Um, state laws. Well, there you've got to think at two stages, you know, are there states with such laws where they operate? Well, thankfully, McDonald's and Starbucks are everywhere. So anywhere that has such a state law, that state law is going to apply. And look, just taking the examples of New Jersey, New York, California, are those implicated laws pretty clearly being violated? Yes. And now let's let's jump back to the, the retail level for just a moment, right? Like who could bring a claim about these things? Uh, well, 
every individual employee of McDonald's or of Starbucks denied a promotion, could they complain? Yes. How about every applicant who isn't hired by Starbucks or McDonald's, could they complain? Yes. How about any rejected supplier or any rejected media company? All of those, all of those could bring suit. All of those could bring suit under state or federal law or both. The Department of Justice, the Department of Justice has uh, the enforcement authority to pursue actions under 1981 and Title VII. So do state attorney generals. In fact, depending on the state, local prosecutors may have that authority. And not only could any of these entities bring such a suit, all of them could bring such a suit. Okay, probably not a county and the state AG for the state in which the county's located. That probably would get combined. But shy of that, all of the individuals could bring suits. All of the state attorney generals could file such suits. The Department of Justice could. And given the multiplicity of laws that would necessarily be involved in different jurisdictions, it's not clear that those could be consolidated. Like, it's very likely that both entities could and would wind up having to defend all of these actions in all of the forums in which they were filed and defending them in each case against an assertion of the availability of uncapped punitive damages. I think you can see why it is that back on the wholesale level, the shareholders we represent think that this poses a material risk to the companies and to the value of their stock in the companies. Again, we'll see how they respond. And until we do, we won't know if this one is going to litigation or not. But there is a very real exposure here that has been inflicted on the companies. And uh, as a result, a very real dispute between the shareholders and their officers and directors who've created that problem. Uh, I want to flag one that has that I'm not behind. <laughs> um, I'm, America First Legal recently sent a letter to Disney. Again, a quintessentially American brand, right? Um, the letter that AFL sent to the officers and directors of Disney raised several issues. It raised an open, anonymous employee letter, which in turn had alleged that the company has created an inhospitable work environment for conservatives, a climate of fear for all those not towing the line. Uh, it highlighted that the company has allowed in its name the vilification of half of their audience and the potential harm to the brand and profitability that might come from that kind of concerted effort. The AFL letter raised the spectacular corporate reversal Disney undertook on the Florida Parental Rights and Education Bill. It's the same bill derisively referred to in corners of the media as the Don't Say Gay Bill. Uh, initially, the head of the company had sent out an all-users email explaining why it was that Disney would not be taking a public corporate stance on this issue, citing in part to the fact that the company had concluded that corporate stances on hot-button issues tended to be counterproductive. Only two days later, for the same individual to announce a reversal, apologize for having taken that stance, and uh, 
signed the company on to a corporate letter excoriating the passage of the bill. The AFL also raised allegations of workplace discrimination against Christians and against the content created by Christian Disney employees. Uh, I believe that it also raised the leaked reports that Disney's C-suite has in hand documentation of the relative support for specifically that act and opposition to that act. was aware that of the deep risks to the value of the company that taking a stance might take, but had decided to ignore those risks out of fear of the company's employees and the criticism internally the officers and directors would receive if they did not take the very stance they had earlier determined to be counterproductive. AFL demanded that Disney appoint an independent Council to investigate all of these allegations. It demanded that Disney establish protections for the rights of its employees, and it demanded an end of the waste of corporate assets inherent in all of the, the discussed issues. I certainly read that as threatening a very similar kind of derivative suit or ultra various action. Obviously, I'm not them, and we'll see how that one pans out as well. As we are waiting for corporate responses, we don't yet know how all of this will go necessarily. None of these are yet in litigation. I think it's a good bet that at least some of them will wind up in litigation. Um, I think it's fairly clear that there are very real legal issues, that there should be standing uh, to reach those legal issues, and that when they're reached, it could have major ramifications for officers and directors of the specific companies and necessarily for officers and directors of every other company that is considering or has enacted any discriminatory policy over the last two years. And with that, I hope people have good questions. Thank you, Dan. Um, everybody, you can see at the bottom of your screen, there's a Q&A function and you can enter enter your questions in there and I can read them to Dan to answer. Just just to start out, I have a, a couple questions. What do you think that from the Coca-Cola's point of view, what do you think their next step? Because obviously they want to put in, uh, put in DEI stuff and ESGs, G, ESG policies. What do you think their next policy will look like now that they've backed off of this one? I think the best bet is that no one in public will ever know. <laughs> Um, Look, um, what made Coke somewhat unique, not totally unique, Novartis did the same thing, is that it chose to publish that it was doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, Normally, what the terms are of a lawyer's engagement letter, that is a quintessentially privileged document. So it would be difficult for anyone to ever access what they are actually going to demand in the future. Um, now that's something that is a, is subject to state law and state legislatures could change, but until they do change that, I, I don't, I will, I would bet we will never know. And what do you think the next steps here litigation wise? What do you, what do you think? You know, we, we may have defeated, defeated this one, but what do you think the next round of litigation will be? Where do you think, how far do you think it will go? Um, could you yeah. kind of elaborate on that? Sure. So I mentioned Novartis since it's they had exactly I shouldn't say exactly they would reduce 
compensation following a failure to comply uh, by 15%, not 30%. So, you know, it's, it's very different. <laughs> um, with that said, look, their policy has clearly been in place for a number of years. Um, and the other entities we're talking about, McDonald's, Starbucks, they've chosen to update the public uh, with extensive pages on their website explaining exactly what they've accomplished to date towards the achievement of these goals. So there's no question that these are actually policies that have been employed that have given rise to live liabilities whenever any set of plaintiffs choose to assert claims against them. I would expect that there are going to be people who start bringing those claims. As they do or before they do, I'm fairly sure that some of these entities are not going to respond to the demands they've received by pulling down their policies and saying it never happened the way that Coke did. And that as a result, I think that you are going to see the shareholder derivative or ultra viris litigation go forward as well in parallel to those various claims going forward. It seems very likely that some of these policies have been adopted by officers and directors because they are true believers and think that it think that their embrace of what I clearly think is illegal discrimination, but they would style equity serving. By the way, we could have a whole separate discussion of the fact that that's not what equity means. Equity is a term that's existed for a thousand years and at no point in that thousand years until the last, you know, proverbial 15 minutes has equity meant treating different people differently to produce the same results just as a detail um because again it's a thousand year old term in english law right um there were people who took exactly that perspective and said everyone should be treated differently to produce the same results in english history they were called the levelers they were a major arm of the radicals fighting for parliament in the English Civil War. And after the Commonwealth was created, they pushed to abolish the courts of equity. They wanted to get rid of equity specifically because equity meant equality and they didn't want equality. They wanted everyone treated so that it would produce the same results, a leveled world. And um, Oliver Cromwell shot that down and equity survived their challenge. So we know, and we've known for 400 years that what we're talking about in the so-called equity pursued by in the interest of DEI is not equity. It's not equity. It certainly isn't equality. Uh, I think these fights are going to have to pan out. And I think when they pan out, you're going to have people who have a very good incentive to fight very enthusiastically because when they lose, which I think they will, it's coming out of them personally. So, you know, hopefully uh, this will actually put a price tag on the decision to use corporate money to pursue illegal discrimination. That's where I think we're headed. And we do now have some questions in our uh, Q&A session that I, I can read for you. And before I do, I wanted to say it was a great plug of the history of the world in six classes. It is a fantastic book. I encourage everybody in the audience to read it. Um, it it's, it gives a great synopsis of uh, how different, different, uh, different liquids change the world. So um, our first question is from Arthur Sapper. Um, are there any efforts underway to attack the so-called Mansfield rule in this context? Not that I know of is probably how I should answer that. Um, that isn't to say that there isn't anyone considering such a thing, but no, I am not aware of any challenges to it. 
the styling of the Mansfield rule being that it requires the consideration of people from various groups, but doesn't require any particular result to come out of that consideration is probably such that it would make a challenge very difficult, but that's not to say that no one will try. Richard Mante, and I apologize if I mispronounce anyone's name, uh, he asks that, is, is, there, is there a model state statute you could suggest to look to if you wanted to get, get his state to pass a similar one? Yes, I happen to have written such a thing. And if he would like to reach out to me, I'm sure that we could discuss it further. Yeah. And what does that, what does that state statute kind of entail? Well, there are a couple different ones. I think the one he's particularly asking about mm -hmm. um, would be uh, a protection of the civil rights, specifically of lawyers. Mm -hmm. uh, it would bar any lawyer practicing in the given state from discriminating on the basis of the same factors covered by Title VII. It would go further in saying that not only may you not discriminate on the basis of those identitarian characteristics, you also, you may not report the demography of your firm, its workforce, or the lawyers working for you, working on any matter to any private enterprise. You know, shy of a subpoena, obviously, you know, you could have those fights, but um, you cannot just willingly choose to classify your workforce in such a way and publish those results. Uh, and it would make, it would alter the professional obligations of lawyers and confidentiality rules to specify that any communication from a client demanding that you violate this law would be one, you'd be compelled to, I think the way I've written it, um, you'd be compelled to disclose to both the Secretary of State and Attorney General of your state, and uh, they would have enforcement authority if they chose to go after this. And you would um, not be allowed to assert, they would not be allowed to assert privilege in order to prevent the disclosure of such communications. I think that's the gist of it, but I mean, it, Next question from Russ Green. How will the SEC mandating, mandating ESG disclosures, climate and human capital management, affect these trends? Right. So NASDAQ, NASDAQ proposed changing its listing requirements in order to require companies to identify the race, ethnicity, sex, gender, I don't remember if they included disability status of their directors. And it required that disclosure to reflect a certain level of defined term diversity in order to remain, to become or remain listed on the exchange. It did have an out. The out that it had was that any company, rather than providing that information or rather than providing information reflecting such an allocation, could instead explain why it has the board that it does. Uh, I've written that that out is actually really material and is something that every corporate board should undertake in order to avoid being sued under Title VII and 1981 in the way that we've been discussing. Um, anyone who fails to, I think any board that fails to do so is inviting the claim that it decided who it's direct, who it would nominate and who it's 
ownership would elect as directors on the basis of uh, on the basis of race and sex, ethnicity of all. Uh, and that as a result of that fact, the only safe thing for a corporation to do if it's to remain listed on NASDAQ would be to take the out and submit something saying we have the board we do because we decided in nominating and our shareholders agreed that individually and collectively, these are the individuals best suited to maximize the value of this company for our shareholders. And we have not produced a board with different um, demographic descriptors because had we done so, we would have breached our fiduciary duties and violated the law. I don't know anyone has done that yet. I expect that no one has, but um, that's what they should do. You're right. The S because NASDAQ is a regulated entity, it couldn't make that change without the approval of the SEC and the SEC has granted that approval. The SEC is now in litigation at the Fifth Circuit, again, actually brought by Boyd and Gray's shop, alleging that it, um, I believe, violates what um, violates the Fifth Amendment's, the equal, sorry, the equal protection component of the Fifth Amendment's due process clause for the federal government to so enforce its laws as to allow this discrimination to go forward. There may also be a statutory claim there. I have not followed that closely enough to know exactly where that litigation is, but it, it is pending and it, it is underway. Understood. Our next question is from an anonymous asker. Do any of the corporate actors claim a justification for policies such as these uh, as their obligations as government contractors under Department of Labor regulations under affirmative action executive order? I have not yet seen that. It is possible that at some point they will. Of course, an executive order cannot compel what Congress has forbidden. So if you are ordered by um, the administration to break federal law and you comply, that doesn't really get you out. It might mean that there's an additional defendant um, in the federal government, but uh, it, it in no way, to my mind, in no way shields from liability the individuals who've chosen to break the law. Jim McDaniel asks, assuming that changes in law, both federal and state, are desirable, what political planks should be promoted to facilitate the correction of such woke violations of law in tradition? Yeah, I hope to be able to give you a fairly robust answer to that down the road, but I don't think I'm prepared to try to say it right now. Gotcha. Some other questions are coming in. Sure. Um, Timothy Harker asks, what is your thinking about using your brilliant strategy against corporate investors and in legal relationships with businesses with ties to the Chinese Communist Party? So a little foreign policy question for us. If you can point me at a statute that is being violated by a corporation, I am happy to kick around whether it's actionable. I may find the, com the Chinese Communist Party repugnant, but that doesn't mean that it's illegal for American companies to contract with them. And I don't think that this is a silver bullet to go after everything you don't like. We need to actually have a clear law that is being violated in order to pursue it. All right. And uh, we have another anonymous asker who asks, what is the primary imputes of these companies instituting such policies? 
Uh, what do they see as their primary gain? I am definitely not the right person to ask that of. I think that the answer is that they they think that either this is just a positive thing that has to be done, whatever the cost, or they think that perhaps in a misplaced reliance on a misunderstanding of the Gruder decision, Gruder is the Supreme Court case from 2002 in which the Supreme Court said that universities were allowed to discriminate on the basis of race, that diversity in a student body produced sufficient educational uh, benefits to make it qualify as um, a compelling state interest for the sake of the 14th Amendment. I think that there are a lot of actors who have forgotten what Gruder actually says and have understood it more generally to stand for the idea that diversity exclamation point is a um, is an affirmative good that trumps all other law. It's not, you know, Gruder, even under Gruder, which, by the way, the Supreme Court is currently considering overturning um, even under Gruder. This was an exception that was only extended to universities out of deference to their expertise in educational policy. It, the Supreme Court has since told us it doesn't extend downward to K through 12 schools. And it certainly doesn't, under, uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't extend further into the vast world of, well, public policy and commercial law. But I think that there are people who wrongly think that it does. Calvin Wells asks, what would you suggest a Disney shareholder do to oppose the actions of the company that the company has taken? And I suppose you can extend that to Coca-Cola or any of these others that have adopted these policies. Yeah. If you were specifically a Disney shareholder, I'd tell you to get in touch with America First Legal and tell them that you're a shareholder and you want to be part of the suit. And if you're part of any of the other entities that I've mentioned, whether that's Lowe's, Novartis, McDonald's, Starbucks. There's another one that I can't mention just yet, but we'll have an announcement out shortly. So please check our website or my Twitter feed. Um, but like if you're a shareholder of any of those and would like to participate in litigation, please be in touch with me so that we can talk to you and get you added to our um, set of plaintiffs. And as, as for these law firms that are being told by Coca-Cola to adopt these policies, do they open themselves up to litigation from their own employees? Um, right. Um, I should shift this because, again, Coke insists it is not and never was policy. But we can talk about Novartis, which affirmatively has said that it's been policy for a number of years. Yes, I see no. I, I mean, look, they're law firms and presumably their internal lawyers have some explanation to themselves as to how they're not violating Title VII. But I can't imagine how that's a colorable argument. Like if you're literally assigning people work on the basis of their race, ethnicity, sex, and gender, you're violating Title VII. Bostock makes that very clear, right? Like um, we have an opinion from the Supreme Court from the last, what, two years, uh, telling us expressly that if race, even if there are other reasons that are equally probative of why you acted the way you did, if one of these factors there, it was sex, is one but for cause, you're liable and you're subject to suit. So I don't really see any legitimate argument 
that any law firm engaging in this has not opened itself to that suit. Now, I've also been a big firm lawyer, and I don't know how many associates or partners are going to sue their their own law firm. It's it's not necessarily a look that a lot of lawyers want uh, for the future of their career, but they definitely have that claim available. Yeah, and that that about wraps wraps up our questions, unless people want to put some in in the 11th hour. Uh, Dan, while, while people might be thinking of a last a last question, uh, do you have any closing thoughts or things you would like to add? <laughs> um, there are lots of joke answers that are coming to mind, but I don't think I should pursue them. So really, no. Um, if anyone listening is in fact such a shareholder, please do get in touch with me. If anyone who is a listener happens to simply know of published policies that are of record, that you think fall into the same category, please draw my attention to them. We'd appreciate it. We, uh, the internet is vast and finding the low hanging fruit of large prominent corporations who've publicly chosen to tell us which laws they're violating isn't as easy as it might sound. So if you, if you have any, please let us know so that we can do something about it. Uh, and we did get one last question is, is, and we'll close it out after this is BlackRock or, or other proxy voters subject to action. If they, if they vote shares based on diversity of the board, there are a whole lot of issues that BlackRock and its peer institutions of state street fidelity and which one am I missing? Vanguard. There are a host of issues that they face that I think have not been properly explored. And uh, I know there are folks looking at it. So I'm not going to, I don't know. I don't know that they could be sued specifically for how they vote in a board election, but I'm not going to tell you they couldn't be. And I'm not going to tell you that other actions that they are taking might not properly be subject to scrutiny. Thank, thank you. That's a bit of a cop-out, but I hope you understand why. <laughs> well, well, Dan, uh, on behalf of the Federalist Society, I would like to thank you for the benefit of your valuable time and expertise today. And I would like to thank our audience as well for joining us and for participating with those great questions. We welcome any listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. As always, keep an eye out on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming webinars. Thank you for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.